The context, um, we pick it up in verse 27. If you can find John chapter 12, verse 27. Greeks have shown up now. It's, this, it's the Sunday. It is what we know of as Palm Sunday, the Sunday of Jesus' triumphal entry. And Greeks have shown up at the door and Jesus has said the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And then he says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Then it says, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life, which is one of the most insane challenges that anyone has ever placed before a human being. We'll talk about that here in a moment. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, that where I am, there my servant will be also. But if anyone serves me, him my father will honor And that picks us up now in verse 27. And see the intensity of what Jesus is saying. This isn't one of those happy-go-lucky, super-smiley moments. Jesus says, and now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said it thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, well, this voice didn't come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all. Notice peoples as in uh, italics. What that means is it's actually added to help us understand what Jesus, has said. what Jesus says simply is, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all to myself. Now this he said signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him and they said, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And Jesus said to him, a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. But while you have a light, the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, they still didn't believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. That's the beginning of Isaiah 53. Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. That's from Isaiah 6. These things Isaiah said when he saw the glory and spoke of him. When he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him because, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried out and said, If he who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, but uh, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my word and does not believe, I don't judge him. I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word in which I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority. but The Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father told me, so I speak. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, we come before you today and we ask for you to speak to us in this time on this Communion Sunday. Minister now, I pray. Open our hearts and our minds and captivate us. Fill us with the strength, Lord, that is necessary to retrieve, Lord, to to receive and accept. Lord, I just pray that right now your word would burst open and come alive. That we'd have so much fun in your word, but we would learn and we would get it, God. We would get it. Please, Lord, minister now. Speak fluent each one of us, regardless of where we've come from, regardless of our backgrounds or our histories. Lord, speak to us now in a way that we get, that we understand and respond accordingly. So, Lord, I just commit this time to you. 
pray you would redeem every second. On this communion Sunday, Lord, have your way, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, like always, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Check the scriptures and make sure that everything lines up. Or if it doesn't, then don't listen to it at all. Here's where we're at. We're five days before Jesus' execution. People have been welcoming him into Jerusalem, calling him the King of Israel. Melecha Israel. They're shouting out, save now, or as we see it as Hosanna. Hoshana means save now. Like Hoshea, which is the part of Jesus' name. Jesus' literal name was Joshua, Yehoshua. Hoshua means salvation or save Yah, like Yahweh, means God. Jesus' name meant simply God's salvation. When people are crying out Hoshana, like Hosea, they're saying save. Hoshana, save now, God. And he is coming to save. But what they want Jesus to save them from is really not what Jesus is actually more interested in saving. And don't miss that. Jesus has healed many people. He's raised people from the dead, even recently with Lazarus in this situation. And yet, what the people are really wanting is a temporary deliverance because it's really all they can see at the moment. And you know how this is. Something in your life so stinks, so rotten, it's the only thing you can think of. Now, over the last couple of weeks, the flu could do that to you. And you lay there and it's the only thing you can think and feel. You lay there and all of a sudden it's like you're somewhere in, on like Mars or something or, you know, or Mercury, someplace where the, where the gravity's intense, you know, and you weigh like six times what you would otherwise. And you're underwater. Well, in that moment, it's like all you can think about. But the problem is sooner or later it'll be gone. That's at least what I keep telling myself. But there is an eternity we need to deal with. And that eternity is what Jesus is actually coming for. But here's the problem in all of that. And the people are saying, save. And here's Jesus going, it's exactly the words that I want to hear, but it's not the heart. And that's the danger in church a lot of times, is we can learn the words and we can sing them or say them or whatever, but really not have the right heart. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what Isaiah says in Isaiah 6, or at least what God says to him, is that my people do draw near to me with their mouths. Oh, but their hearts are so far from me. And God knows the difference. So here is Jesus hearing them say, God, save. Save now. And he's going, I want to do that. But you don't want the saving I offer. What you really want is a comfortable life now with no intention of applying the eternity that he's coming to save you from. And Jesus is Savior, but if you think that the best saving he has for you is you know, earthly poverty or the flu, you are ripping Jesus off. So now he turns to his people and he is troubled. The word's terrasso, and terrasso means to be stirred, to be agitated. Like, you ever watch a kettle, and you turn it on, and you kind of know when that thing's going to shut itself off sooner or later because the water starts going... And in my case, I always overfill it. And so it, it, I get it because, you know, my eyes aren't that good, so I have to wait till it sort of shoots out the top. Then I know it's probably ready. Well, that kind of agitation is what's happening in Jesus' heart right now. He says, and now my soul is troubled. So what should I say to the Father? Should I say, save me? You guys are crying out, save. Is that what I should be crying out, save me? Well, here's the problem. For the very purpose, this is the reason I've come. Jesus didn't come just to teach a couple really cool sermons. He didn't come just to heal a bunch of people and give us an example that we should follow. Though he did all of those things, that's not his primary purpose. His purpose was to save. But here's our problem this troubled, this terrasso, this troubling that he has. Well, three different times Jesus will experience that. He will groan in his spirit and, his, and be troubled at the tomb of Lazarus in John 11:33. He'll be troubled in John 13. And then, so in other words, the chapter behind and the chapter ahead. In the chapter ahead in John 13:21, Jesus will be troubled in spirit and say, 
One of you will betray me. And imagine Jesus looking, knowing his betrayers at hands and inside that kettle's boiling. Because his his heart's overwhelmed at a moment like that and here. And yet Jesus will say twice in chapter 14, don't let your heart be troubled. As you believe in God, believe also in me. And he says, hey, look, I'm going to give you peace that the world can't possibly give you. So don't let your heart be troubled and don't let it be afraid. But what Jesus realizes, and we see it in verse 27, is that he can't save his life and yours too. He's going to have to do one or the other. So here's the problem. Built within every one of us is a mechanism to survive. Somewhere in Yasis' being is a desire to live. God created you with that inside of you. And there are certain things that if you're kind of like me, I tend to really like adrenaline. I tend to like those moments of jumping off of something and hoping that I'll land good or well or however you want to put it. But in the end of it all, there are certain things where inside your body goes, uh, wait a minute, you should probably really think about this one. And the older I get and the slower I heal, the more I have to. And then one thing I learned as a younger, notice I didn't say young, as a younger guy, is that if you're actually going to jump off a cliff, standing at the edge of the cliff for a moment to consider is your enemy. Because that's that point where that part inside of you kicks in and goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Look at how far that is. Bungee jumping. There's a, there is a, uh, a uh, bridge in Colorado that is insanely tall. Now, it doesn't look insanely tall because it's the valley that it rides over that makes it so. And when you're jumping off of it, you're jumping off of something taller than the shard. And of course, the problem is I always have friends that actually like to make my life more miserable on a trip down like that because I guess they think I'm cocky. So what will happen is, is that when my friend actually ran the bungee jumping business, is that when I started coming off of it, the moment I'm falling off and I'm at the point of no return, he goes, no, 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 wait, that's the wrong one. And he did that on purpose, of course. And I'm like, what? That was my experience. Now, <clears throat> here's the reason I'm saying that. As that inside of you, there's a part of you that says, no, you really don't want to die. You don't want that. And for some of you, you live in that point where that thing rules you in such a way you won't even eat a questionable food. You won't go down certain areas and you'll say, ouch, just in case, because somewhere in that, that part has become a very major part of you. But what would it take for you to actually throw yourself into harm's way? Well, it would take one of two things. One is temporary insanity, because you have to override the part of you that actually says, survive. Now, Usually that happens when a person is so consumed by a moment that they try to overcome all of those other things. The problem is, if you just try stopping breathing, for instance, you'll pass out and then you'll start breathing on your own because God created you that way and then you'll wake up with a headache and then you'll really hate life. But there is another motivation. Love. I look at some of you and I believe that wholeheartedly. I believe in a moment, if Yash were walking by and he knew that Carolina were, were, was in a burning building and he knew that he'd have to run in there to rescue her, that she wasn't getting out alive unless he did, but he also knew that running in there would at least, at the very least, burn him to a place where he will be permanently changed, I genuinely believe Yash would still go. Because I know the love he has for Carolina, Carolina to some degree. And I know that I, I trust that. And I know that there would be a part of him that he has to even consciously override. The part that says, yeah, so what's wrong with you? That's a burning building. You don't run into a burning building. But the heart part says, Carolina's in there. Because Carolina's in there. I would rather die in the building with Carolina than live the rest of my life knowing I could have possibly saved her. Does that make sense? The reason I say that is I want you to realize that's what Jesus is facing. 
what Jesus is facing is he's facing the most heinous, torturous, horrible way to die. But he knows that everything in his sane self doesn't want to be tortured. That would be weird. But the only thing that could compel him to the cross is his love for you. Even his love for the one who will nail him to the cross. Even his love for the one who will spit in his face and pluck out his beard and say, prophesy, who hit you now? He would love them so much that he has to override all of those natural survival mechanisms inside of him. This is why the Romans actually, by the way, didn't invent crucifixion. They just stole it from the Syrophoenicians and then tried to perfect it. The reason why crucifixion was such an effective way of killing someone is because of your body's natural desire to breathe. And therefore, though you want to you know, stop the pain you're experiencing, your body will continue to breathe on even in the midst of all of this, until basically you go into a maximum output failure situation. And the reason I say that is, is Jesus is looking, he's going, Father, I know this. Right now I'm troubled, but what should I say? Save me? That would be the natural thing to do. I don't want to die like this. But... This is why I came. Now, if this is Jesus' experience, could you imagine what would happen if we call ourselves Christians and we make Jesus an option among all the other options? Like Jesus would, like the Father would willingly let Jesus be tortured to death and still let you rub a big belly of a guy or something and think that's okay? And somehow that's just on equal proportion with watching his son tortured to death? Do you really think we can stand in the face of a father that really loves his son and actually think that's okay? And Jesus looks and he says, This is, this is why I came. So he says, Father, would you please glorify your name? Now, understand, glorify, we look at that word and we kind of think of someone that's sort of like this is shining something in its better light. But the word doxa, from where it comes from, literally comes from where it means to seem, to the way that it actually is. To be honest, glory in its simplest sense is you without any makeup, emotionally, physically, or otherwise. It's the real you. And you could go, oh, there I was in all my glory. But when Jesus is saying, Father, glorify your name, what he's saying is, let them see you for who you really are. Which is exactly what he's going to say by the end is, you know how they're going to see you for who you really are? Because they're going to see me. And in seeing me. Now, and I don't know if you're one of those people, and it tends to be this way if you were raised more in a traditionally, you know, kind of religious environment. But we kind of get this weird bipolar God thing going on. Do you know what I mean? It's like there's the Old Testament God and he's kind of moody and smitey and he's just kind of like waiting for you to do something wrong and smack you. And he's kind of like an angry big troll or something with an attitude. And then there's like Jesus. You know, it's like hug the sheep and carry them on his shoulders. And he's like, come here, give me a hug. And then you're like, so which God am I talking to? And what Jesus is blowing out of the water is that mindset. What he says is, look at, if they see what I do here, then they've got to see you for who you really are. And they realize that this whole idea of loving and wanting and, and desiring you, this is a radical thought for a God who actually wants you. But I want you to recognize, until 21 years ago, I didn't get this either. Because 21 years ago, my wife got pregnant. And 21 years ago, I became a dad. Well, 20 years ago, I became a dad. She became a mom 21 years ago. The moment she conceived, she was, she was a mom. I didn't become a dad until I held my child the first time. Until then, I was just the husband of a psychotic woman. But anyways, the, and get the idea that <clears throat> when I held that child for that first time, and there she was jaundiced, so she looked tan. And I mean, it was just sweet. And she kind of looked like this sweet lizard baby thing. And um, gooey, and but it didn't matter. She was mine, and I held her, and she was perfect. 
with all this promise and stuff oozing out of every orifice on her face. And it was just, it was the most beautiful, weird-looking creature I ever saw in my life. And it was at that moment there were a couple of things I realized. But the one that was the most profound was that I don't love you that much. I don't love people enough that I would let my child torture to death for you. I could conceivably actually jump in front of a bullet for you or at least put myself in harm's way out of care and love for you. But it was until then I didn't realize there was a deeper love altogether. Man, I tell you, you find yourself in a situation where someone's kind of roughing you up and I'm around, pray. Pray pray, pray the situation never happens for both of our sake. But I could conceivably jump into a fray pretty quick. It's fairly, sort of fairly natural for me. But to throw my child in there, even at their nastiest moment, there's no way. So when we think about the Old Testament father as some kind of grumpy guy, and yet he would let his son be tortured to have you, don't you for a moment doubt that he loves you? So the father says, I have glorified my name, son, and I'll glorify it again. And the people responded, wow, it just sounded like thunder. It's thundered. And others said, I think that's an angel, which is really weird. Jesus is talking to the Father, and they're going to play out that that's an angel. But then Father's going to speak, you know, Jesus is going to speak from the cross, and they're going to say, he's calling on Elijah, though he calls him my Father there. And Jesus says, that wasn't for me. That voice wasn't for me. I didn't need that. I get that. Because that was for you. There are times where the Father needs to speak and you need to hear that voice and understand it is a voice that says, you want to see who I really am? Stare at my son for a while. Verse 31, this is where the whole thing cruxes in. This is now it's the judgment of this world. Do you see that verse? Do you guys see that in your Bibles? The word judgment here is an interesting word. Because usually the word us is the word for judgment, it means a guilty verdict or some passing some verdict, but it's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is the word crisis. It's where we get the word crisis from. Now, understand what a crisis is. What a crisis is is a moment that demands a choice that will bring about change. There's the situation. We're going back. Though this myth has never happened. We're going back to Joss walking by this burning building and he hears Carolina inside. He's at a crisis. He's going to have to make a choice and that choice is going to permanently change him. No matter what choice he makes at that moment, let's be honest, that's going to permanently change him. If he walks away from that building, he'll never be the same. He jumps in that building, he'll never be the same. He's in a crisis. And that's all a crisis is. is A crisis is a moment where your hand is forced to make a choice. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Interesting, you, people try to pull from this text this idea that God sort of arbitrarily sends people to hell. And it's so opposite of what's being said here. He goes, look at now is this moment. This is where the whole world, every human being, is going to be forced to choose this. And they'll never be the same as a result of it. This is the ultimate world crisis. And it's not about pollution or about global warming, or about a lot of things that still can be what, you know, choose whatever level of gravity you want to add to it. The bottom line, he goes, this is the one thing that eternally you will be responsible for in regards to a choice, and you'll never be the same because of the choice you make. And he goes, let me tell you why, because now the ruler of this world is cast out. Ekbalo, it literally means thrown out, or we might even say evicted. And he goes, look at this is the moment. This is the key moment where everything changes. This is the moment for which every human being on the planet will be forced to choose. And that includes you, by the way. Because on this moment, I am serving notice to the enemy and he is being evicted. And he says in verse 32, And now if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all to myself. 
El Kos, the word, it literally means to drag, to impel, to pull. So, case in point, Tunde is walking down the street and he sees her. And he doesn't know why, but he's got to go talk to her. And he practices his smooth talk for a moment. His head gets a little bit like that. And he does like most guys do. That come, He does a little bit of face touching. I don't know what that's like. Just You know things are doing good when he just... Right, that that means something. And he's working on it, and he goes, and he can't tell you why, but he's got to go talk to her. And it's like something inside of him is drawing him. And the more that he speaks with her, the more that he's drawn. And he can't put a math behind it. It isn't like he can attach a bunch of numbers to it and say clearly, here it is. This is on my endorphin factor or whatever. There's It's a number 15 or whatever. My circulation is increased. I mean, no matter how much science or weirdness you want to add to it, in the bottom line, there's something that just is beyond quantification that just goes, i got to go talk to her, man. I, there's just, I don't know what it is, but I just got to. Well, that's the thing that's happening when Jesus is, when I'm lifted up from the earth. And he's talking about dying on the cross because it says he told us, signifying by what manner of death he would die. When Jesus hung on that cross, he was calling every human being to him. And I'm going to remind you, this is the critical moment. This is your moment of crisis. This is the choice you're going to have to make. What are you going to do with that guy on that cross that did that for you? That's the bottom line here. So we look at when I'm lifted up, I'll do that. There'll be something inside of you that will compel you. And you'll go, I don't understand, but there's something inside that goes, I don't know, man, there's just like this spiritual world that I, I don't know, I just got to know more about. But, and then you, you play around with counterfeits. And in that same way, you know, we could say Tune may have had bad experiences with relationships before this point, And there'd be a part of him that kind of is standing at the ledge going, I don't know if you want to leap on this, man. You know what happened the last time you jumped. But there's a part of him that's still compelled. And today, maybe you've seen all kinds of nonsense religion and you've watched people in pointy hats and people waving their things and all kinds of crazy stuff. And in all of that, it's sort of part of culture and you've watched people kind of do all of this stuff and yet that has nothing to do with God's Son hanging on a cross with your name on His heart. There's no part of that that has anything to do with that. And yet somewhere in all of that, you're compelled by this purity of this, this action that's so far beyond all of this other stuff, this politics and you're like i don't get it well jesus says i want to warn you that's exactly where you're at because that's exactly what he promised so he said this signifying what death he would die and in verse 34 it says well the people said wait a minute i don't get this how in the world are you going to last forever and that's what we understand from the torah when you're saying you're going to have to be executed and i understand they're trying to figure that out and they're sorry are these two different people so this is looking You have a choice to make about walking. But if you're willing to walk to follow me in all of this, we'll adopt you. You'll become a son of that light and there will be a clear and obvious to that. But if you don't, you won't know where in the world you're going. You ever hear people say they need to find themselves? You ever find yourself looking for yourself? I did. It was the scariest and ugliest thing I've ever seen in my life. Jesus is like, yeah, okay, so now that you found you, what are you going to do with you? I'm like, run. How do I run from me? How do I get me away from me? And Jesus is like, there's the good news. That death on the cross takes who you were and buries him. Well, so here's the deal. Jesus starts telling us this, and he says, look at while you have the light, and here's verse 36, he says, believe. He goes, here's your crisis moment, and this is the choice you need to make. Present active imperative. Present means you've got to do it, you should do it now. Active means you make the choice. It isn't going to just be impressed upon you when you'll wake up and go, oh, I guess I just believe. It is a choice you need to make. And then that same way as Tunde walks and he sees this gal and he knows he's got to talk to her, he's got a choice to make. He can keep on walking or he can walk towards her. 
But it's a choice he needs to make. It isn't like he's just going to wake up one day and go, oh, yeah, now we're married. There are choices that need to be made in between those two, or he's delusional. And what's interesting is this term believe is going to be used at least nine times here, and every time it is a choice you need to make. So let's kind of clear this up for a moment, and then we can bring this around and walk this through. Belief comes from a root word, and the word is pistucho. Pistucho means trust. It's all it means. And everybody, you, every one of you here, and me included, we have some. Because it tells us that God has given us all a measure of trust. So you have trust that you exercise every day in all kinds of weird ways. For instance, how many of you got some form of breakfast that some stranger made this morning? I watched Dan eat a breakfast that somebody that he didn't know made. We still don't know who made it. Still wondering, actually. Some of you got on a bus. So yeah, you can maybe see the guy, but did you actually sit down and start to talk to him? Excuse me, but just in case, you actually in one of those places where you actually want to kill everyone and yourself today? Just thought I might want to check. Or did you get on a train? That's even better yet because you don't even get to see the person. You ever wonder if it's a real person or they just hit a button that's like a recording? I don't really know if that's actually the driver at this moment. And you know what's scary is, you ever like see the train coming and you watch some of the drivers? They kind of look like they're actually not actually there. They're kind of a puppet or something, right? They're just kind of like... Right? And you watch them pull up, and they like, I'm like, I, I really don't think that person moved at all or breathed. I actually think that may actually be a mannequin in the front there. But you exercise trust on a stranger. You ever get in a plane? Talk to a pilot for just a moment. You know what they tell you? They tell you it's this lengthy moment of sheer and magnificent boredom bookended by moments of absolute terror. It's the taking off and the landing is where the real problem is, because that's where everybody dies. Well, not everybody, but that's where the people die that do die. So uh, how good are you today? So did you have those three Diet Cokes, or worse yet, those three Diet Cokes and Jack on your way out? So how's your marriage? Good, okay. How are you feeling about life right now? How are you feeling about my life right now? Because I'm in 15B and I was hoping to leave that seat when we're done and go see my family. But let's face it, sometimes those are just kind of necessities, right? I mean, if you're going to live life in London, you're going to have to exercise that kind of faith, like it or not. But what about the other times? Every friendship you have, you're exercising trust. You do know that, right? Because every friendship you have, you give someone the power of influence on your life. I try, we've been trying to tell our kids since the beginning, every person you meet is an associate, but they graduate to friends because you know that the moment they become friends, they have the power of influence over your life. So who do you want to influence you? Let's be honest. Is there anyone in here that you felt like you've done spot on, perfect, on choosing your friends your whole life so you've never had a bad influence? Okay, that's good. That means that every one of you seems sane and at least rational for the moment in your honest inventory of yourself, me included. Have you ever actually exercised trust upon someone that you actually knew was a jerk? You actually knew was going to do something horrible with your heart? You knew was going to abuse you in some way? And you still did it anyway. What's wrong with us? It's like God gave within your heart a debit card that you could slap down that God called trust. Or the term we use in, in, in Scripture, faith. It's just what the word means. So Julie's got her card. And let's face it, like most places, there's a whole lot of hawkers out there that kind of go, put your card here, put your card here. Come on, place your trust here. Oh, I'm really worth it. And sometimes you reach in, sometimes you're like, no way, I've already been there. But isn't it true that some of the greatest scars we carry are those moments where we knowingly threw down that card and we knew we were going to get work for it and we did it anyway? Here's the crazy part. For some of us, if not all of us, we not only threw down that card, we got worked and then 
We tried to heal up a little bit, and then we went back and threw the card down in the same place. Again, and again, and again. The word believe is the act of throwing that card down. And Jesus says, while you have this light, at this moment, while you're seeing things clearly, make a wise purchase with your trust. Throw your life down at the feet of Jesus. Because there's nobody that's proved that they're dedicated to you like he is, that overrode his own desire to survive to have you. He's the one who's proven it. Here's the scary and weird part. We actually threw ourselves in the burning building because we are guilty in our own sin and Jesus still went in it knowing he would have to die in our place. While you have the light, believe in the light that you would become sons of light. And Jesus was hidden. And it says, but although he did so many signs before them, they did not believe. Do you see that in verse 37? There's that imperfect, active indicative. And what that means in a simple sense is they made the choice to not slap that card down and they continued to make the choice to not slap that card down of their trust on Christ. It's like, there it is. Jesus is there and he's like, I've proven it to you. And you're like, yeah, but I don't want to. And he's like, I've proven it again. Here I am again, taking care of you. And you're like, yeah, yeah, but I don't want to trust you anyway. Here's the scary thing. What Jesus said is, there's a period of time this is going to become real clear, but it's not always going to be this clear to you. Because you know this. You can get in the habit of numbing yourself in your nonsense. Does that make any sense to anyone other than me here? I'm going to say it in ways that will be less offensive. Or maybe more offensive. You can make that decision. Coffee. I have never seen a human being ever take the first sip of coffee and go, wow, that is the best thing I've ever tasted. No. Maybe that's you. In which case, praise the Lord for you. But it's like, oh, this is horrible. But I could have more. Oh, this is horrible. I should try more. It can't be that bad. I should try it again. Oh, maybe it was just the place I went. Let's go to another place. Oh, this is also bitter and horrible. But it, oh, but, but wait a minute, everyone's got a beard and a flannel, and they're cool, so I should probably drink from this place. This is the cool place for this. Yeah, look at the beard wax dripping off of that beard. Yes. Look at, look at all the people around me. They all look like sane people, and they're all drinking this. It must be me. I should try it again. Oh, I'm still getting used to the taste of it. Okay, now, the reason I say that is, is look, at, I'm not here to dish your coffee, your coffee habit. <coughs> That's going to happen naturally. But the part is, is that somewhere in all of it, you get used to it. You get used to it. And what you do is you actually go, this isn't as bad as that bad is at that place. That place, that's really, that's bad coffee. For some of us in this room still, that are still newbies and all that kind of stuff, those are like, that's like being redundant to say that's bad coffee. But, you know, it's like, but you know, it's this place. And it's like, what makes this bad? It's bitter. Well, they all taste bitter. But it's like, you know, it's really bitter. Okay, gotcha on that. And the reason I say is we get used to it. We build a tolerance. Now, I'm just trying to pick something that's just going to be mildly offensive. But you get that way with relationships, don't you? In the beginning, you had a standard, and that standard was that person's going to act and look and sound and behave like Jesus. You're like, nothing less. And then you went, hmm, they got to act and breathe and eat. Yeah, that, those are my requirements. They shouldn't beat me or steal from me that much and you get used to it when you're used to it and you convince yourself it can't be that bad the fact that you have to say that is like somebody taking a drink of something going oh this really can't be that bad I'm going to take another sip just in case yeah it really is oh but I bet the third sip isn't so bad and the reason I say that is is Jesus is saying I want to warn you you get addicted to your madness and all of a sudden You're making choices now without thinking about them, and they're horrible choices. 
Look at what it says. Verse 34. Although Jesus had done all of these amazing miracles in front of them, they still would make, they, they were, imperfect means they were constantly making the choice not to believe. They are addicted now to saying, no, 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 I'm not going to trust you, not going to trust you. And he says, you know what? This is actually what Isaiah says, verse 38, that was fulfilled when he said, Lord, who has believed our report? Now, again, that's active. In other words, he goes, you know, even though you did all of this, there's still, I mean, who's making the choice to believe this? And when you look at Isaiah 53, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we wouldn't even esteem him, but he carried our sorrows and he bore our griefs, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And he goes, he was beat for us, and he was beat up and tortured for our sins, for our guilt. And by his stripes we're healed. And all people want to pull from that is you shouldn't have the flu because Jesus got beat up on your stead. And yet the whole point of it, he says, because we all like sheep have gone astray, each to our own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The thing we needed healing from was so much more than just a temporary malaise. It was that we were guilty before God. And he goes, you know, the problem is, Isaiah said, who has believed our part? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You know, when a guy reveals his arm, he's flexing. He's going, you want to see God's strength manifested? You want to see how God showed how tough he was? He did it by watching his son beat to death for you. But you know what? They couldn't even believe, verse 39. And you know what's interesting is? This is also active. In other words, they were so addicted, they couldn't even make that choice anymore. As I said, he's blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts. Notice it's never said that he's swayed their hearts. Hardening means that he cemented their choice lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn that I should heal them. Well, wouldn't God want to heal them? What God doesn't want to do is just temporarily heal you and then let you run healed to hell. God's not interested in just lightening the load for a moment so that you can go back to living without him. God's like, I don't want to do that. What I want is you to be with me. That's the point. So why would he do that? Why would he strengthen your conviction to run away from him? You know why? Because maybe in you running away from him, you get the full dose and see how horrible life really is without him. So that maybe just for a moment you would go, whoa, what am I doing? And you'd wise up, you'd sober up. God did that by sending Israel to Babylon. He's like, you like idols? Here, have lots of them and see how you feel about it. And you know what? They never asked for another idol after that. And God will give you the straight pure on this. So you see how horrible it is. So you'll finally cry out to him with conviction. But listen, if you don't want to be a witness, God will make you a warning. You're going to be something. And there are people out there that are running from God. And let's face it, God's still using them because he's making them a warning. Don't be a warning. You watch, man, those horrible relationships and you're like, note to self, whatever you do, don't do that. Do you really want to be that person that they have to point at and go, whatever you do, don't do that? You know, when Isaiah saw that, he saw God's glory. That was Isaiah 6. He saw God on the throne. He has this habit, by the way, of showing you himself on the throne before it gets mad. It's the king before the chaos. It's the holiness before the havoc. It's Isaiah, what he saw was the northern empire being destroyed and he sees the Lord on the throne first. Ezekiel would see it with the destruction of the southern kingdom and he would see God on the throne first. And then we see Revelation chapter 4 and 5, God on the throne. And what do we see after that? Utter pandemonium. But first you need to see God's on the throne. In other words, even when things get crazy, does not mean God's not on the throne. Here's the crazy part. Nevertheless, and this is where you see that it isn't just like God just arbitrarily sent a bunch of people to hell. It says, even though even in all of that, still many believed in him. Many still made the choice to trust him, but they did it privately because they didn't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. It says, because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Interesting word for praise. It's that word glory. Remember seeing it for what it really is. Remember how Jesus said, you want to try to save your own life, you're going to lose it? He goes, you know, you could try to trust in me, but in the end of it all, what you really want is just applause from man when what you really could have gotten was seeing God for who he really is. 
So finally, in our last few verses, Jesus says, look at if you believe in me, it's not just me, it's the Father. You want to see the Father? You would see him if you trust me. If you believe in me, you won't have to abide in darkness. If you make a choice to listen to my words and you want to choose not to believe still, don't worry about me judging you. The words you claim to know now are the ones that are going to condemn you. Because Jesus said, I didn't come for that, I came to save. Now don't miss this. This is what Jesus said. This is the whole crisis of the whole thing. Is I'm going to be raised up on the cross and I'm going to kick the ruler of this, of this world out of this place. And, I'm going to, and I've come here to save and that's how I do it. So listen to verse 48. You want to reject me? Understand you're not just rejecting me, you're rejecting the Father. You cannot reject Jesus and accept the Father. That's what he says. And you can't just receive Jesus' words and not receive the Father's because those are the words the Father gave him to speak. So I've not spoken of my own authority. The Father is the one who told me to say these words and I'm saying them. So therefore, I want you to realize what the Father is offering. The last verse. Everlasting life. That's what he's offering. So listen, here it is in a nutshell. You have a desire to not die. That's reasonable. But inside, spiritually, is the same thing. You have a desire not to die spiritually forever. But that's the choice you're going to have to make. And you can try to do everything you want to pad things now. It's like playing Monopoly and you can get so rich. But the moment you get up from the game table, you have nothing. And you could go, yeah, but I have hotels on Boardwalk and Park Place and I own all the railroads. Congratulations. Now, see if that will actually get you on a train. A real one. And you can have the high score. Have you heard about that now? The guy that's just sort of the high score for Donkey Kong and now everyone's kind of questioning whether or not he... But I don't know. As far as I'm concerned... So you have the high score for Donkey Kong. Congratulations. Exactly what does that do for eternity? Imagine standing before Jesus and going, yeah, but you don't understand. I spent my whole life getting the high score on Donkey Kong. You can see Jesus going, sad. That's what you got. Congratulations. You popped over a barrel and now your whole life's over a barrel. Now I'm not telling you you can't play a game. What I'm telling you is, is where are you at? with this moment, this crisis moment for all eternity. And that is, what are you going to do with the one who hung on the cross for you? Inside right now, there's that God. And by the way, he tells us that faith comes by hearing that his word. Right now, as you're hearing God's word, God is depositing into your heart more trust. Where are you going to spend it? In more dumb places? Or are you going to follow him? He goes, you know, here's the great part. If you follow me, Jesus speaking, my Father will honor you. Or you could choose not to follow me because what you really want is the honor of man, but they're not going to be there to applaud you when you stand before me on eternity. Have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? Are you just busy kind of banking on a politic? Because right now we're going to go to prayer. And at the end of this time, we're going to have communion. And understand, communion, all we're doing is we're renewing our vows with the Lord. We're saying, yes, Jesus. I say yes to you all over again. So if you have said yes to Jesus, we celebrate what he's done for us. If you haven't, my challenge to you is, what is keeping you from saying yes to the one who ran into the burning building to save you, who overrode his own desire to survive because he'd rather die than live without you? Will you pray with me? God, I want to thank you for this word. I want to thank you for what you've done in this time. I want to thank you for the way that you've spoken. I want to thank you for walking us through this text and challenging us, Lord. There is a life to be lived here. But we get it once, and it's appointed unto man once to die and then to judgment. And then all accounts will be brought before us and brought before you what we've really spent our life on, what we've really spent our time on, what we've really spent our heart. And we recognize that we could be so addicted in, to the foolishness of slapping down our trust on really dumb things 
That even on a day like this, God, You are reminding us that the important, the most important decision we'll ever make is what we've done with what You've done on the cross. So I pray right now for every one of us, God, regardless of where our footsteps will take us out of this building, right now, You call us, Lord, to make a choice to believe. To take that trust You have placed in our hearts and to place it upon the work You've done. Dying on the cross for our sins. Being buried so they could be buried for good. Raising from the dead on the third day so we could have a new life no longer under the tyranny of that guilt and shame. And following You that You would honor us even as we seek to honor You. And here in this room right now and at the sound of this voice, if you don't know if you've ever said yes to Jesus, I ask you to pray this prayer with me. It's a simple one. It's just accepting the gift He offers. But make that choice today, please, for your sake, for His sake. Pray this prayer with me. God, yeah, I'm guilty in and of myself. Done wrong thought wrong, felt wrong, intended wrong. But you sent Jesus to pay that price on the cross so that my bill could be paid without me spending eternity away from you. But you've given me a choice to trust you or not in this. And today I make the choice to say yes. Yes to Jesus and His gift at the cross. Yes to His resurrection and the new life that I will have in Him. I hand my life over to you. Make it something amazing, I pray. As I'm yours now. Jesus, be my ransom. Be my rescuer. My Savior my Lord, my love. I hand my life to you in your name. If you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. You've heard our prayers, Lord. Now as we take the last couple of minutes and have communion, bless this time. May we really get it. And I thank you for the privilege of being able to serve you another day. Jesus, in your name. Amen.